0: And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast, and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 554 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show breathing trainer and author, Patrick McCowan. Now we discuss a host of topics from the ailments that he suffered as a young boy, his journey into understanding breath, deregulation of the nervous system, posture and performance and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Patrick McCowan. Enjoy. So, Patrick, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind Shield podcast today.
1: Great. No, it's, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much, James.
0: So, based on your accent, I probably people can hear it already, um, you are not in the U.S. here. So, let's start at the very beginning. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So,
1: it's in a small little country of Ireland. The next, the next land after when you leave Boston and you, you cross the pond, you hit, you hit Ireland. So, yeah, so I'm just on the West Coast. And looking out onto the Atlantic Ocean, not too far away. It's about six miles, but we can kind of see it. Beautiful.
0: Absolutely. Beautiful. Nice place to be. I grew up in Bath and I still haven't made it to Ireland yet. I have to. I've got, I've oh, got yeah. some guests now. One is a firefighter in Dublin. who's also like a world-renowned surfer and um, what they call waterman. You know, the guy that, that lifeguards the surfers. Um, he's mm, one of your own, yes. g- own countrymen. So, yeah, I need to get my ass over there. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah.
1: It's uh, even like in terms of breadth work as well, but when you when you see the likes of Lord Hamilton putting it into practice and how it can adapt. And I didn't realize that we have we have somebody here as well in, in, in Ireland. So it's all good.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, But yeah, he's a a lifeguard in Dublin, which is interesting because Dublin is the only place that I've seen in the whole of Ireland and the UK that actually does, like I do, paramedic and fire together. The rest are uh, separated, Mm -hmm. but just the city of Dublin does it. So the unusual tangent. Mm -hmm. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me just a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Sure. I was born in the East Coast of Ireland, small town, Dunboyne in County Mead. And um, my parents, my mom was a stay at home mom, and my dad was in construction. And I have five brothers. I'm the eldest of six. So I suppose that gives you its own unique kind of thing because when you, depending on the place in the family, it often influences or sculpts your personality and, you know, the roles that you play as a young kid growing up and how that can how that can kind of shape then the rest of your life.
0: So when, when you look back now, because I hear you talk a lot about, you know, uh, development and, you know, the way that breathing and posture affects, you know, literally the, the development mm. of the jaw. With that young life, with the position that you were in, in that family dynamic, what do, you do, what do you attribute to some of the issues that you were experiencing before we get to your aha moment with breath work?
1: I don't really know. I think it, it's, I was born into an old house and it was an old damp house, which I don't think would have been helpful in terms of chest problems. And that was my problem. And when you have a chest problem, you know, when your lungs are inflamed, it's not just isolated to your lungs, but your nose is stuffy and then your sleep is impacted, etc. My, my parents were innate nasal breeders, and they have wide facial structures and plenty of room in their mouth for all to eat but all of the siblings have narrow facial, facial structures, jaws that are set back. So it's, it's even in just one generation. And it wasn't that we had a poor diet. We we had a pretty good diet. Now, of course, as kids, you know, kid will always seek out some sweets and things like that, which is normal. But in the main, I don't see anything that I can't identify one factor that contributed to my own health issues, but possibly it was a damp house.
0: Right. Okay. Now, what about athletics? Were you a sportsman as a child? I played a game called
1: hurling, which is a, it's kind of predominantly an Irish game. It's played with a stick, and uh, it's spelt H-U-R-L-I-N-G. And it's a lovely game, and it was a game that was really suited to me. And I played that up into maybe 12, 13, 14 years of age, and then I picked up again under 18s. And I love the game. It's quite a skillful game. It's a fast game. I did a little bit of boxing then. Fifteen and sixteen years of age, but I didn't. I never had a good engine, and even on the hurling pitch, I wasn't able to play centre back because I didn't. I would be running out of air and gassing out. Whereas I was able to play in the left half half back. Um, in terms of, I was able to manage it. I wasn't the biggest of players as a kid, but I would have been relatively fast, and you know, able to use the stick. But yeah, no, it's interesting. Like, it's when I look back, I think definitely it was in boxing that it would breathing really, really had me back. And you never know why, you know, like oftentimes you'll put it down to lack of condition. But we were training three nights a week, you know, we were putting in our effort. Um, But outside of the training, I was going around with my mouth open. I was sleeping with my mouth open. I was breathing fast and breathing upper chest. And yet, that was never addressed. You know, you're going into a ring and amateur boxing, you're doing three minute rounds or sorry, three, one minute rounds. So it's not all that much, but it's fairly taxing when when you're you're caught for breath. Um, so, yeah, so that was sports was one thing I played. Um, did I excel in it? Not particularly. Did something hold me back? I think definitely. And uh, yeah, so but just this, that's that's the part that I had.
0: Now, one thing I noticed, because I did combat sports pretty much my whole life, is, you know, when you've got the mouth guard in, especially if you're afraid of getting kicked or punched or elbowed or kneed, <laughs> you tend to, you know, when you're conscious, you think about closing your mouth. You think about, you know, gently biting down on your mouth guard. So, again, when you look back, um, was there uh, a barrier to... Being able to keep that mouth closed back then was it some of the congestion and stuff that I've heard? Oh, talk a stuffy about? nose.
1: Oh, of course. If you have a stuffy nose, but it's just a habit. You know, if you spend months and years going around with your mouth open, and you know, you might if you have a child yourself, you look at kids, and my own kid is walking up the stairs, and when she's got a head cold, the mouth is open. Now, of course, I'll keep on nudging it, but I don't want to sound like a broken record player. And at the same time, I'm conscious that when, when we use the exercise to help decongest the nose, et cetera. So when a head cold is, is, is array, it's just it's only a temporary issue. But for many kids, if they have recurrent nasal issues, they're of course, they're likely to switch to mouth breathing because they don't get enough air into the nose. And the problem, once you switch to mouth breathing, predominantly, you will be breathing faster in upper chest. And then it's a vicious circle because your nose is more stuffy. And, you know, stuffy nose, you're not going to use it. But really, when it comes to sports, I cannot imagine, James, the one question that often strikes me is all of the sports scientists in the world, in the respectable institutions, why aren't they looking at breathing patterns and why aren't they looking at nasal breathing? Because there's a lot of athletes being held back. There's a lot of individuals. I, I would never class myself as an athlete. Number one is I have a nose that's all over the place. My maxilla, my top jaw is set back. My mandible is set back. My airway is compromised. I've had scans done on my airways. So I could never be an athlete because you need to have the anatomy and a good airway to be an athlete. And this does stem back to the problems in childhood. However, nobody is talking about it. We've been talking about it for 20 years. There's many prominent orthodontists and dentists have been talking about it. But in the main, sports scientists aren't looking at breathing, you know, and it really kind of surprises me because if we look at the populations with poor breathing patterns, it's 75% of the population with anxiety and panic disorder. And I have to apologize. We're actually building a clinic here and we're in full flight. We've got eight guys out and you're going to hear, you're going to hear all of the tools going on. There's not much we can do about it. So
0: no problem sorry about that. <laughs> but,
1: but yeah, but it's just like, You know, you can think of even a top athlete and they will have a psychologist, a nutritionist, a strength and conditioning coach, a physiotherapist, a psychologist or said that, but nobody looking at breathing. And I was talking to a guy about about two months ago called Lewis Hatchett, and he was a a national cricketer for England, and he was talking about his debut game going out his first game playing for the national team, and he said he was overcome with anxiety. And the psychologist told him to embrace it. Now, what a load of crap. Honestly, like instead, he should have been just took aside and just say, here, Lewis, here's some breathing exercises because you can change states by changing breathing. But what's more, if there was a breathing instructor in the camp, the guys would know how to when they want to upregulate and when they want to downregulate and when they want to recover and when they want to improve their sleep. And, you know, you can do this through the breath. But the unfortunate thing about breathing is that it's been taught for decades by individuals, woo woo and airy fairy and all of the nonsense that comes with it. And there's none of that. Like breathing is something I use in my everyday life. And the one thing that it has helped me with it has helped me to manage difficult situations it has helped me to be more creative, more intuitive, more productive. Life is softer. The highs are not so high, but the lows are not so low. There's many individuals when things go right, it's all high fives and they're jumping around the place, shouting and roaring and screaming with the light. And then when things go wrong, they're on the floor and they can't even get up off the floor. And life isn't about that because things are going to go right, but it's short lived and things are going to go wrong, but that's also short-lived. And I would much have it that the highs are not too high and the lows are not too low. And when you're in tune with your breathing and you have a little bit of awareness of what's going on in the body, you can kind of pick up when you're feeling a bit stressed and a bit tense. And you have some tools then to help deal with that. And if everyday breathing is good and if sleep is good, there's two tools there that can be very important.
0: Absolutely. Well, my, you know, profession and associated professions, a lot of us are, you know, wearing some sort of SCBA, especially in the fire service. So the, the air pack on our backs. And you talk about an absence of discussion of breathing. Well, there is no more insanity than a profession that is in an environment. The only air on planet Earth they have access to is strapped on their shoulders and there's none. So you talk about the efficiency of breath as far as the cardiovascular side. You talk about, the um the stress state you know and controlling that one thing that was very interesting that i heard you discuss on other podcast or just touch on i didn't really hear you expand on it was um actually i take that back it was in the book itself was um the fact that you there's a, a trend of some professional athletes lifespans being shorter than the average you know office worker so talk to me about longevity and breath even in elite athletes
1: Yeah, I suppose it was a controversial area as well, because you you cannot pick the one factor that might be causing that. the, The longevity is it's not they're not all that much shorter either. I think if I can remember correctly, it was only it was a couple of years, so nothing major, but surprising because you would think that people in the realm of business, because it can be stressful and constant stress. But then again, the more I talk with athletes, they are under a lot of stress as well. And they often have perfectionist tendencies and they can put huge demands on themselves. And many of them can, you know, experience burnout from pushing themselves too hard. And more and more we're seeing issues of this in terms of mental health. I think we've seen it recently in tennis. Um, You'll see it in other sports. And then, of course, when you think about sports such as contact sports, such as rugby and American football and soccer and things like that, in terms of concussion... Breathing could possibly even play a role in concussion because if you're concussed, there can be reduced blood flow to the brain for quite a long time afterwards. And often the the instruction is to do nothing about it. But if you change your breathing patterns, you can increase blood flow to the brain. And just coming back to the point that you made about the firefighter, a firefighter who's, who has got a tendencies towards anxiety or or panic disorder or asthma, or if a female with hormonal changes, they are going to breathe a lot different to an individual who doesn't have those things. They're going to be breathing harder and faster and they'll get through their tank quicker. Now I know they're only in there for a limited period of time, but it is about breathing efficiency. You know, if we think of a world class athlete, you would expect that world-class athletes when they do physical exercise that they have relatively light breathing for the given intensity and duration of physical exercise. Whereas if you see somebody who's walking down the, the sidewalk and they're huffing and puffing and they're out of breath or they can't climb a flight of stairs without getting out of breath, that is not necessarily down to condition, but that can be down to dysfunctional breathing. And we use the breath whole time, the bolt score. And it goes as follows just because people might be saying, well, how can you kind of get an idea if your breathing is optimal or not? So with this exercise, you're sitting down for about five minutes just with normal breathing and then simply take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose and time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then when you feel the first stress to breathe, or the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles, let go and breathe in and out through your nose and your breath should be normal. So it's a comfortable breath all time. It's the length of time that you can hold your breath comfortably following a normal exhalation. And there was one paper by a professor of physical therapy from Evansville University, Professor Kyle Kiesel. He looked at 51 individuals, only five of them at normal breathing. Now, that's surprising because I would never say that, you know, that's such a high proportion are going to have dysfunctional breathing I think it's about 20 maybe 30 percent of the normal population but certainly in some in some sectors of the population it's much higher now his conclusion from that study was that if your breath hold time your comfortable breath hold time if it's above 25 seconds there is an 89 percent chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present now I guarantee you if you line up a group of firefighters or any walk of life. We've done it with many, many athletes and I've worked face to face with about 8,000 people and I've seen all walks of life from the fittest of the fittest to people who can hardly walk into the room. And the breath hold time gives you a good indicator. The people with the most breathlessness during physical exercise, the people who are gassing out too soon, the people with the least resilience the ones that are highly strong, because if you have a low breath hold time, your breathing is typically a little bit faster and a little bit upper chest. Now, what does faster and upper chest breathing? How does the brain interpret that during rest and during sleep? The brain interprets that the body is under stress, sorry, stress. So if you have an individual who is breathing just a little bit faster and a little bit upper chest and this is overlooked and mouth breathing might be in there and regular breathing and their breath time is lower than 25 seconds, physiologically, that individual is more likely to be increased hyperarousal. So they're not in balance in terms of the autonomic nervous system. Because as human beings, resilience is all about being able to go into a stressful situation and then come back out of it and recover quickly. Whereas we know that, you know, what marks, what is the measure of a leader? But the individual who can make decisions when things are going wrong. That's the measure of a leader. It's very easy to make decisions when things are going right. And even if you see it in a football game, the guy who steps up to the plate and is able to bring the troops and get behind the team and get the team motivated, that's the measure. But that takes a calmness of mind. And if you have an individual who is in a difficult situation and they start breathing harder and faster, all the brain wants to do is get the body out of that situation. Like you're, you mentioned Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and he had a podcast with a brain surgeon back in May of 2021. And I just took an excerpt from that podcast and I put it into the book. The brain surgeon says, now you can imagine this is an occupation, which is pretty tricky. You've got a patient lying down on the table in front of you Their skull is cracked open and you're looking into their brain. And regardless of training, you know, that's a that's a tricky situation at the best of times. But the brain surgeon said, he says, if I get into a tricky situation, the first thing I do is prevent myself from hyperventilating. Of course, he knows it. But why doesn't everybody else? How many people get into a tricky situation and they naturally react with faster and harder breathing? Well, What happens when your breathing is faster and harder? All the brain wants to do is get the body out of the situation because the brain is interpreting that the body is under threat. We still respond to a difficult situation the same way we responded 15,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, a million years ago. But on the positive, if we breathe out fast, that's a stressor. And if we have a slow and prolonged and relaxed exhalation, there's information communicated from the body up to the brain that everything is okay. And the brain interprets that the person is safe. So the next time any of us are in a tricky situation, always think of your breathing. And okay, it mightn't happen so quickly, but always if, if you're attentive to your breathing at different times throughout the day and you don't need to have robes and all of the paraphernalia. You don't need to be sitting in the lotus position and looking absolutely wonderful with a stillness of mind. None of that stuff. You carry this with your everyday life. We as human beings, we're either stuck in our head, ruminating on thoughts, asleep to life, missing out on what's in front of us. And when we start bringing our attention onto our breathing, it's a great way of training the brain to be able to direct our attention where we want to direct it upon. So coming back to the individual gets into a tricky situation. What should you do? And I'm not saying it's easy. It will take a bit of practice. But it's a great kind of something to fall back on. Take a soft breath in through your nose and have a relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. People won't even know that you are doing it. But if you do that for 90 seconds, that will be enough to help activate the body's relaxation response. We should all know. That when we get into a tricky situation, the first thing we should do is not hyperventilate. The school kid should know about it. The university student should know about it. The firefighter should know about it. Police, military, sports, every walk of life. And coming back to the psychologist who gave the advice to Lewis Hatchett, embrace your nerves. The psychologist should have taught him how to downregulate
0: Absolutely. Well, it's, it's so important to, you know, to get that perspective because you think about many of the responders out there. Let's say again, for the, fire, for example, the fire service, we get that fight or flight response at 3 a.m. through, you know, an alarm going off. And then they're told, okay, there was a, there was a shooting and now you're not driving away. You're driving into the danger, you know, and I found that I don't know where it was in my career, but I, I listened to Mark Devine or someone talking about some sort of breath work. And I started doing the nasal breathing, the box breathing um, on the way to the call. And it was amazing because it really did. I saw it down regulate, And then since then, I've used it a lot, even in the exercise side as well. But, you know, the the kind of chicken with the head cut off when you, I've seen on, on firegrounds before, absolutely. If I went back and replayed, if there was ever a video, I guarantee you their mouth would be completely agape as well.
1: Yeah, Mark's, Mark's exercise, um, it, it very much popularized box breathing. And box breathing is about bringing balance. And really, that's where we want to be. You know, we don't want to be too relaxed going into a situation, but neither do we want to be too stressed. And the other thing that I would say is, I could only imagine somebody having to get up at 3 a.m. and you're getting disrupted out of your normal, natural sleep routine. And you're expected to be fully attentive. When you only have a few hours sleep to grab, you'd want to make sure that the quality is really good. And nasal breathing is the key there. People talk about sleep hygiene and don't look into your mobile phone and have a cool bedroom and don't drink alcohol and don't be eating late at night and all of this stuff. It's all good stuff. But I have to say, if you're sleeping with your mouth open, Even if it's just for three or four hours, it is a problem. We should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. I woke up with a dry mouth probably for about 20 years, every single morning. I was going into school, falling asleep in school. At 14 years of age, I left school, never to go back again, never. I was totally frustrated with it. And of course I'm not unique. Children are demanded to go into a classroom and be attentive to studies and curriculum for six, seven hours during that day. How on earth can you do it if your sleep quality is lousy? And these kids then get frustrated as I did. And it wasn't that I wasn't intelligent in primary school. I don't know what you call it in the States, junior school, maybe. um, But when I was a young kid, I was very much top of the class. And I went from the top of the class to the bottom of the class. Now, at 14 years of age, I was going to, I wanted to be a store manager. So I was working in a shop and I was learning to be a trainee shop manager. But at 15 years of age, I ended up going back to school and I studied to get into university and I studied 10 and 12 hours a day. Now, yeah, because I was a kid, even a youngster, you know, you're talking about 17, 18 years of age and you're waking up feeling pretty lousy. And not only that, but... You, you don't have the capacity to hold your attention on what you're doing. So, for example, I would be reading a book and I'd have the book out in front of me. My eyes are directed towards the pages, but my attention wasn't because my attention was stuck in my head. And f- formal education, in order for us to excel in education, we need to be able to think. But we need to be able to concentrate, which is hold our attention on one thing. And we need to have a decent attention span which is the length of time that we can hold our attention on one thing. Now, for us to have good concentration and a good attention span, we need deep sleep and we need functional breathing. Now, these two same traits are relevant to every walk of life. The firefighter going into a situation at three o'clock in the morning after having sleep, fragmented sleep, and is expected to perform to 100% of their ability. And of course, training kicks in, but it can be different if you have a fighter, even three hours of sleep. If they get really good, deep sleep during those three hours, breathing in and out through the nose with the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth and light, slow and deep. And what I mean that is if we breathe hard during sleep, It creates turbulence in the airway and the airway is just a pipe. And I'm talking about the space at the back of the nose where the nose meets the throat and where the mouth meets the throat and the throat itself. How many firefighters have sleep apnea? How many of them snore heavily? How many of them have insomnia? And the solution for sleep apnea is a CPAP machine. 50% 50% of people can't comply with it. And I don't know how on earth anybody complies with it. You know, you've got a mask on your face or a nasal cannula. You've got a tube and you've got a machine beside you. And yes, it works. But it's it's almost that it's a it's a solution that works for as long as you use it. Whereas if we change breathing patterns, we can help to reduce the risk of sleep apnea. And I wrote a paper on this back in January of this year with two ear, nose and throat doctors Dr. Carlos O'Connor, and it was simply getting the mouth closed, the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, improving your breath hold time, what we measured earlier on. And also, breathing light and breathing slow and breathing low with the diaphragm, because your diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration, but it's also connected with the upper air with the later muscles. And the other thing about the diaphragm is that the diaphragm, we need functional breathing so that there's An optimal generation of pressure, intra abdominal pressure is generated, and intra abdominal pressure is necessary to provide stabilization for the spine. So, individuals with dysfunctional breathing are more likely to have dysfunctional movement. And 50% of the population with lower back pain have dysfunctional movement. Now, is it the lower back pain which is causing faulty breathing? Or is it these individuals could be breathing a little bit faster in upper chest? And as a result, They're not getting the postural stabilization. They're not getting the support for the spine with what they need. And this then is contributing to lower back pain. So, you know, physical exercise. You can imagine an individual running into a situation. He's wearing a mask. I don't know. Does the mask create a feeling of air hunger? Does the mask, you know, your breathing is likely to be different with a mask than not wearing a mask. So the individual with the lower breath hold time, with the faulty breathing, is more likely to be breathing hard and breathing faster. And it's not just that it's affecting their ability to do physical exercise, but it's affecting their ability to remain calm and composed in the situation. Um, I'll give you this example. I use this example fairly commonly now because I remember, I don't know, it might have been 15 years ago. Two two women came in to do a job interview. I was interviewing them. I was kind of looking for somebody to as a PA at the time. And the first woman came in to me and I was interviewing her. It was friendly enough, having kind of a chat. And she was sighing, and she had very fast breathing, a little bit up her chest breathing, et cetera. And you make decisions based on the person's breathing pattern because her breathing pattern was telling me that she's feeling highly stressed. And then I have to ask the question, well, if she's feeling highly stressed during the interview, is she the best person that when things get a little bit demanding, will she be able to cope with it? And another person then came in afterwards, another woman, and uh, her breathing was calm and collected. And I chose the second. Now, probably, did I make the right or wrong decision? Well, I'm human, as same as anybody else, but we judge other people based on their breathing as well. And... I would say to anybody going into a difficult situation or if you're making a presentation or if you're going for a job interview, don't let your breathing give you away. And, you know, I was working with a group of police as well, and they were they're snipers. So they're professionally trained and interesting, very because they're highly trained individuals. They exercise physically for about an hour and a half every day. They're young. They're extremely fit. And their, their role involves sitting behind the sight of a rifle for up to one hour at a time. That's the shift. Now you can imagine having the, the absolute attention, 100% of directed attention looking into the sight of a rifle, picking up on the slightest of movement. That demands concentration and that demands attention span. But then we went further. How to breathe while pulling the trigger. You know, do you breathe in? Do you pull the trigger as you're breathing in or do you breathe in and hold your breath and then pull the trigger or do you breathe in, breathe out and then pull the trigger. And I broke it down in terms of physiology Well, I said, okay, well the breath in is kind of, that's when the, the foot comes off the brake. So the breath in is a little bit more of a stress response and the breath out is when the foot is put on the brake. So in terms of pulling the trigger, we decided to go with taking a very soft breath in through your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. When the foot is putting on the brake, everything is slowing down and you can have your absolute concentration on taking the shot. And if you miss the shot, you just wait for the next breath. You're taking the breath in and a really soft and slow and relaxed exhalation because when you breathe with a slow and relaxed exhalation, You stimulate the vagus nerve, which secretes a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine causes the heart rate to slow down. And the brain interprets that everything is okay. And when the brain interprets that everything is okay, you then have all of your reserves on that task. Now, if you see guys coming up and they're taking a penalty shot, a soccer player, for example, and you see them coming up and they're taking these full big breaths, almost hard breaths out what a load of nonsense whoever is teaching them because they're not taking into account physiology the player is already a little bit anxious there's pressure on that individual a young 20 year old there's pressure on that individual in taking the penalty shot we should be teaching them how to down regulate so just as mark Devine's exercise with box breathing is wonderful for bringing a balance in the autonomic nervous system And if you have somebody who is highly stressed, you can bring them into balance. Or if you have somebody who's not ramped up enough, you can bring them into balance. But then we have to think of our sleep and we have to think of our our everyday breathing patterns. And, uh, you know, go a little bit deeper in terms of breathing. And like the one thing that when I came across, I came across this by accident in 1997, 98. And I read a newspaper article and it was about a Soviet doctor, a doctor during Soviet times. He was commissioned during the the Soviet and the US space race. And his role was to determine the composition of air in the capsule. So that was one of his projects that he was doing. And he talked about breathing through the nose and he talked about breathing light. I used his technique there and then to decongest my nose. It's called the Buteyko method. By simply taking a normal breath in and out through my nose and holding my nose and just gently nodding my head up and down I was able to open up my nose now I'll be temporarily but the more I was breathing through the nose the better my nose worked and I remember practicing taking less air into my body so for a few minutes during that time after reading the newspaper I took as little air as possible into my nose now I wasn't doing it perfectly but I still got some of the results I took A very soft and slow breath in, almost that I was breathing in imperceptibly, and a really relaxed and slow, gentle breath out. I did that for about four minutes or so, and I felt air hunger. So I deliberately breathed less air for four minutes. And I'd say to anybody, listen, give this a go. Now, if you're pregnant, don't do it. Or if you're prone to panic disorder, don't do it. But... Otherwise, you'll be fairly okay in doing it and it's not until the point of stress. But if you get a little bit stressed, just take a rest for four minutes. Take as little air as possible into your lungs and feel that air hunger. And as you feel the air hunger, check the temperature of your fingers and check the saliva in the mouth. Now, when you breathe less air, carbon dioxide increases in the blood because it cannot leave the body through the lungs. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, it improves your circulation. It's a vasodilator. Your blood vessels dilate. It's very common with people with dysfunctional breathing to have cold hands and cold feet. But it's not just the blood vessels to the hands and to the, to the, the feet that are constricted. It's also the blood vessels to the heart and to the brain. By breathing less air, we can increase blood flow to the brain. By breathing less air, we can increase blood flow to the heart. By breathing less air, we increase carbon dioxide, which causes a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. This is the Bohr effect. And hemoglobin releases oxygen more readily. So it's ironic that when I was breathing less air there, I felt my hands get warmer. But I also felt increased watery saliva in my mouth. And what does increased watery saliva when it's in the mouth say? It says that you're ready for the digestion of food you're in that state of relaxation because when we're stressed, the body is not ready for food. The mouth is dry, but when we are totally relaxed and you've got increased water, saliva coming into the mouth, you're ready for food. Now, why does that instruction differ from the vast majority of breathing techniques Mm -hmm. that's been practiced at the moment? Because 99.5% of them are not talking about breathing less air. They're talking about breathing more air. Take full big breaths. And a deep breath is not necessarily a big breath. A deep breath just means that you've got optimal movement of the diaphragm. Nose, slow and low, of course, is very important. But we have to just think that breathing has a much greater potential than what has been taught. Because what has been taught has held it back. And any individual if they were to go into a studio and that instructor was to teach them how to improve their blood circulation, genuinely, not just saying airy fairy kind of stuff that's based on nothing and talk about how do you get oxygen delivered to the tissues and organs? How do you change your states? Physiology, if you want to ramp up, if you hyperventilate, you ramp up. If you do a long breath hold, you ramp up. But how do you recover? How do you down regulate? How do you prepare for sleep? How can you help reduce the risk of sleep disorder breathing? If you have asthma, how to help deal with that? If you have an individual and their blood oxygen saturation is dropping, and I'm sure many of your colleagues face this week in, week out, how should the individual breed to increase their blood oxygen saturation? And I'll just hone in on that for a moment because your colleagues will be able to understand it. Say, for example, an individual, I'll just keep the maths a little bit simple. So they're having a respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute. They're not having a panic attack or anything like that. But I'd say that they are breathing shallow. And their tidal volume is 300 mil. So the volume of air drawn into the lungs in one breath is 300 mil. And that gives you a minute ventilation of six liters. Now, even though they are taking six liters of air into their body, How much of that air is actually getting down into the small air sacs in the alveoli where gas exchange can take place? We have to subtract dead space. So to subtract dead space, which is kind of fixed at about 150 mil, we have 20 breaths per minute multiplied by tidal volume of 300 mil, subtract 150. So that gives you 20 by 150, which is 3 liters. So here is an example of a person breathing fast and shallow. They are breathing six liters of air into their body, but of six liters of air drawn into the body, three liters of that air stays in dead space and only three liters reaches the small air sacs for gas exchange to take place. So somebody with their blood oxygen saturation may be down to, just an example, 89%, not, not even. I'll go lower. I'm going to go down to 80%. And this was taken from a couple of studies looking at individuals at high altitude. A decent enough population, I can't remember, I think it was 50 people. Their blood oxygen saturation at altitude was 80%. The researchers got them to change their breathing from normal down to six breaths per minute. So hopefully now my maths work out. So instead of taking 20 breaths by 300 mil, which gives you six liters, Have six breaths by a thousand mil which gives you six liters and when we subtract dead space we're left with six by 850 which gives us 5.1 liters so here's an example that even though they're still taking six liters of air into the body by simply changing the respiratory rate without increasing minute ventilation so they're not taking any more air into their body than what they already were but all they are doing is optimizing alveolar ventilation and to increase alveolar ventilation from 3 litres to 5.1 litres per minute. And in the studies looking at the individuals at altitude, their blood oxygen saturation increased from 80% to 89.5%. Now, that can be a problem because first responders coming to a victim if they overventilate that victim, it can do more harm than good. And the reason being is because too much carbon dioxide can be removed from the blood through the lungs. And as a result, it causes a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve and less oxygen gets delivered. And we have to think of the heart. The heart is not just the muscle for pumping blood throughout the body. It needs its own supply of blood flow and it needs its own supply of oxygen. And if we overventilate, it's going to cause problems because it reduces coronary blood flow and it also reduces oxygen delivery to the cart and this can affect the cardiac rhythm.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting and I see it in myself. So I had Brian McKenzie on about four years ago now. Um and mm. had, you know, Melissa Vranich and has had uh, Rachel Vickery on in Australia. Um But this breath work is so important, not only, as we said, for the deregulation of the nervous system, but also the, the efficiency as well. Um, but I started exercising with my na- mouth closed, you know, focusing on nasal. And I don't think I was really a mouth breather ever, but kind of like you, you know, my, I have my nose broken, I have my jaw dislocated, I've had all kinds of th- things, people punching me in the face a lot that have, uh, definitely created barriers to, you know, good, uh, inspiration mm. and expiration. Mm. But I noticed that I was taking less breaths. And being more efficient so whether it's at rest or whether it's as you said ventilating a patient or whether it's you know during some high exertion wearing a mask that whole less is more i mean i hear that so much now whether it's you know less contact in in sparring whether it's less times in the gym or less you know um, duration in a gym but even with this i mean i think we we've almost it's almost like we've been educated that we need all way more air than we actually do so just trusting that process and resisting as you said that kind of feeling of oxygen debt um it's amazing how little we need to perform you know some pretty uh aggressive tasks
1: Mm. but it's something that we can train you know because i suppose james there's going to be people listening to this and saying well now they're going to go out and sprint with their mouth closed and they'll go blue don't sprint with your mouth closed what i would say to you is start doing your light and moderate physical exercise with your mouth closed. And if you're really, if you've got a really compromised airway, what you can do is just gently prise your nostrils apart or use a nasal dilator and you'll feel an increased airflow. At the start, when you first switch to nasal breathing during physical exercise, the air hunger is a bit stronger. And the reason being is because carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood because the nose imposes a resistance to your breathing. That's about 2.5 times that of the mouth. So when you breathe in and out through your nose, you are naturally going to breathe less air. And when you breathe less air, carbon dioxide is going to increase in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, it's going to cause the air hunger because the feeling of air hunger is not driven by oxygen. In most instances, it's driven by carbon dioxide. So when when you do your physical exercise in the first few weeks, the air hunger is stronger. But the more you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed, the body adapts to the increased carbon dioxide and your tolerance of CO2 improves. Then you can do physical exercise with less ventilation. So it's almost that there's a few different points to it. We spoke about there is a way to breathe to enhance alveolar ventilation. But there's also a way to train your breathing that you simply don't need as much air in the first place.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's it's fascinating. Like I said, I've seen it in myself. And my son actually is the other side of the spectrum where he's always had a lot of nasal congestion. He's always talked to, uh, not talked, he's always slept with his mouth open. He used to sleep with his eyes open too, too. It was terrifying. <laughs> but, but he's also had, he's when had, is he, is he? he is 14 now, but um, yeah.
1: I, well, he could have been the 14 year old kid that I was. And I will have to say, of course, I don't know the child. The chances are sleep is impacted and concentration is impacted. And I have no problem saying it because it's never going to be 100%. I can never say 100% of kids with their mouth open and nasal congestion, their sleep is impacted. But it's pretty damn high.
0: Yeah. And there's no question to me that, regardless, I mean, if it's asleep or anything else, like it's. It's very inefficient, and I'm um, you know we've had discussions more recently now, and you know getting him with that as you said with your own children, um, you know not not badgering them, not not making them feel yeah. um, you know bad about that, but just trying to focus on it. And I think actually the strips, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe I'll try getting some. Strips well, do you know
1: what well. I'll show you? I don't know. To, I should. We have a tape that we've been using more so with youngsters. We started off with youngsters. We used them a lot with adults. It's called Myo Tape. It's it's not a tape that covers the, the mouth. So I'll kind of show it to you here so that you get an idea of it. Um, it's an elasticated strip that we designed. Now, the only one that I seem to have to hand is the children's one. But I'll show it to you anyway. So here it is here. That's the shape of it there.
0: Okay. Like a, like a rectangle with a, a cutout.
1: With a hole in the middle of it. And it's elasticated cotton. And this is the child's one, so it's going to be small for me it pulls the lips together, but it doesn't cover the lips.
0: Okay. So
1: it's not covering the lips. So there's nothing dangerous or bad. Now, what I would say is though, we have an app called butecoclinic.com. And if you download it, all of the exercises for kids and teenagers are free on the app. So now I was teaching my own child, which is a nine year old. So he just has to kind of say, well, it's only a nine year old, but the exercises are still the same relevance for a 14 year old. Have him do the nose unblocking blocking exercise, have him do the steps exercise, have him do the jogging with the mouth closed. And when he can breathe, he'll feel more, much more comfortable breathing through the nose anyway, in terms of when you breathe through your nose, it's much more comfortable than mouth breathing. And when he is pretty comfortable breathing through the nose, then put the tape around the mouth during sleep.
0: Okay, beautiful. Well, I want to make sure that we go to one other area because um, I want to be mindful of your time. I heard sure. you touch on something called the Costa syndrome. And what really is, you know, makes this so pertinent to me is in this profession, obviously, we see a lot of you know, trauma. We are exposed yeah. to seat deprivation, organizational stress. But I've, there's a common denominator that a lot of people in these associated professions are drawn to them because of an element of trauma early in life. So I'd love to hear about the Costa syndrome and then that carry-on impact on the breath.
1: Yeah, DeCosta was an American physician during the American Civil War, and he noticed that soldiers returning from the front line, they exhibited symptoms of breathlessness, fatigue, difficulty sleeping, etc. And it was called the Costa syndrome, but it was later changed. The name was changed then to chronic hyperventilation syndrome in the 1937. And it basically meant that the soldiers were confronted with, with the stresses of war. And their breathing patterns changed to become harder and faster. And over weeks and months, these soldiers then developed faster and harder breathing pattern as their normal breathing pattern. But if you develop a faster and harder breathing pattern, it's getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. But it's also putting you into sympathetic overdrive. So that will explain then the symptoms that they are having. Now, in terms of if we were to look at, say, for example, PTSD or, or burnout or chronic fatigue syndrome or exhaustion syndrome, with exhaustion syndrome, in one paper, it's been very understudied, but in one paper that I've came across, looking at, I think, 36 individuals in Sweden, 100% of the individuals had chronic hyperventilation syndrome. Now, if we go a little bit further than that, if the autonomic nervous system is in a state of hyperarousal and increased sympathetic drive, heart rate variability is going to be reduced. And a heart rate variability is an objective measure of vagal tone. And heart rate variability is also influenced by the sensitivity of the baroreflex. So the baroreflex are pressure receptors in the major blood vessels called baroreceptors, which are monitoring our blood pressure and changes in blood pressure. And when our blood pressure increases, the bar receptors will send an immediate signal via the brain to the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rate to slow down so that blood pressure normalizes. With people with PTSD, but people with panic disorder, anxiety, depression, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, etc., they will have reduced heart rate variability. We need to think about how to stimulate the vagus nerve. And the first thing that I would do is look at their sleep. I remember talking with two soldiers who had returned from, I think it was Afghanistan, and they were Green Beret Special Forces. I can't think of their names, but the name of the podcast was Warrior Souls. And they told me that the biggest change that they made in helping their PTSD was improving their sleep quality. How? By taping their mouths closed at night. And I will always come back to, if we are to improve mental health, And if we are are to improve resilience, we have to have optimal sleep quality. And it's really about getting the mat closed. That would be the first thing that I would do. The second thing that I would do is I would have individuals coming in with any sort of issues, breathe light. And I know it doesn't sound so sexy. And in the Western world, you know, it's all about this huffing and puffing and hyperventilation because it seemed to be visually doing something. Forget about all that. You know, bring your attention inwards and really slow down your breathing because, really, what we want to be doing is we need to be telling the brain that everything is okay. We don't need to be hyperventilating if you're already hyperventilating because all you're doing is telling the brain that shit has hit the fan. So, we want to get out of that. And with a period of time, then by breathing light, but also then by breathing slow, a lot of the research is on slowing down breathing to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. So resonance frequency breathing to stimulate the vagus nerve, to increase the sensitivity of the bar reflex, to help bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system and also to breathe low. So anytime I'm working with somebody coming in, I always get nose breathing first during the day and during sleep. Then I focus on light breathing to improve the biochemistry of their breathing because that in turn then can help to stimulate the vagus nerve, etc. Then we bring in slow breathing. Then we bring in low breathing. Then we bring in functional breathing during movement because there's no point in them breathing pretty okay during the day, but then hyperventilating during physical exercise. I want to build up their both score. And we also then give exercise to challenge the individual. You know, when they reach a certain point, we give them breath hold exercises to stress the body, just to give the autonomic nervous system a bit of a shake. And we will do breath holes to lower blood oxygen saturation down into the 80s. I think it's from from a number of perspectives, when we're prone to trauma, the more we can stimulate the vagus nerve to help bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system and also improve the biochemistry of your breathing. Because you can do all of the CBT in the world Is it going to address the physiology? If you are that ramped up individual, we have to target the physiology there. And we can do it by the breath. Now, there could be a very important role here for cold water immersion. You know, if the individual feels comfortable immersing themselves into a cold bath and use the breath as a means of really taking a soft breath in through the nose and a relaxed and a slow and gentle breath out and immersing yourself into the water and surrendering to the water. So putting the body into a little bit of a discomfort, deliberately doing, maybe we could do breath holes on land. We could do slow breathing and cold water immersion, putting the body into discomfort because that will teach the brain to be able to cope with discomfort. So humming could be very important here. Um, anything that will help to stimulate the vagus nerve, but I would come back to get their sleep right. And I haven't looked at PTSD and sleep disorder breathing, but I pretty much will say that there's a strong likelihood that there's a problem. Now we've had a few of our instructors who are working with PTSD, using the techniques that we use. And we've even one instructor who was on cocaine for many years. So he was on hard drugs for many, many years. And I can say his name because I've done a podcast with him, Paul Mcnurney, and he's based in Glasgow. And now his role is because he's, he's recovered from drug addiction. And of course I can understand when human beings, when, we, when we're confronted with stress, it's very easy to, to seek out the bottle or to seek out some way of helping to bring a silence to the mind. And ultimately that's what we're all trying to achieve. You know, we're all trying to achieve a silence of the mind. So I can understand why some individuals will, because of their their past experience, use that. But, you know, does it really address the issue long term? Or is it a big hole that one is just digging? And could you resort to breathing and use your breath? And not about hyperventilating. You know, maybe if somebody was doing short-term hyperventilation, it could bring about some some reset which which will be great, but don't think that this is your normal way to breathe. We have to be asking the question: how should you be breathing all the time and the best mantra is l s d light slow and deep breathing, or nose slow and low, and even if you're just sitting in your armchair at home and you take your attention out of your mind and onto your breathing, and you really slow down the speed of the breath in. And you have a relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out. How does it change your physiology? And the proof, that's the proof of the pudding. You know, there are some exercises will suit some people and they might not suit others. And you could have two people with PTSD. One might like the stressor response. They may like doing the hyperventilation and long breath tolls, but the other individual might like doing the slow breathing. And sometimes you're not going to know. But what I would say to you is that if you are going down the route of the hyperventilation and the long breath holes, go easy enough. So go easy at the start and gently acclimatize your body to it. It's powerful stuff. And I've made plenty of mistakes. Like I put people into, I put one guy into A&E as a result of doing breath tolls with panic disorder. And of course that wasn't my intention. And I had him do breath holes to decongest his nose. But it brought on such a a, a suffocating alarm response. Now, I had him do the exercise at 10 o'clock in the morning and he left. Everything seemed fine. And at four o'clock, I got a text that he is after admitting himself to accident and emergency. And this will just give you an idea of the power of the breath. Don't mess with it. You know, if you if you're starting off, go nice and easy. You can't go wrong with nose breathing. You can't go wrong with gentle, slow breathing. Don't be hyperventilating. You know, what I mean there is if you were to do it, just do it nice and easy, gently at the start. Be very careful.
0: Yeah, Well, it's so pertinent to people listening as well, because sadly, a lot of, you know, especially firefighters, again, every third day for 10, 20, 30 years, they do not sleep. You know, they might physically have their eyes closed for a number of hours if that happens to be a slow evening. But they're never ever getting into a deep restorative sleep. So they're in that kind of hypervigilant, sympathetic state so much. So I think this breath work is important just while we're in the station or, you know, sitting in a police car or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but certainly when we're on those days off, you know, to really to get the most out of those, those shift days or non shift days. Now I want to be mindful of your time and let you go, but I want to make sure we talk about the book. So the oxygen advantage. Is is a great resource for a lot of what we talked about, the, the how to of so much of this. Um, you have Atomic Focus that you sent me, which is another great one. You know, if, if you're trying to a- apply certain breath techniques to certain, um, scenarios and then, uh, the breathing cure, which I thought was amazing. We didn't have time to get into, um, some of the other things I want to talk about, like COVID and even sexual, you know, the sexual element. Um, so where can people find all these books? And then where else are there resources for people online?
1: Yeah, the the books are available on Amazon. And I think the Atomic Focus is probably the easier book for somebody to start off with, because it gives you specific exercises there. The Breathing Cure is a deep dive. Um, That's for somebody who likes to, to know what's going on in the background. And I did it deliberately. I wanted to have a book that showed that there's some credibility with breathing. And um, that's why it's very heavily referenced, but it might be a little bit too scientific, but it's going to be suitable for some people who, who love the deep dive. The oxygen advantage is a popular book. I wrote that about six years ago and it's primarily looking at sports performance, but there's a chapter in the mind and as well in terms of getting into flow states and getting into the zone and sleep. So those books are available from Amazon. And then our website is oxygenadvantage.com and also on Instagram as well. The handle his ox- oxygen advantage.
0: Beautiful. Well, I've got one more qu- one closing question that I'll throw at you and then, and then let sure. you go. Um, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Mm, that's a good question. Well, one of the most influential people that I've come across as work is Eckhart Tolle. And I came across his work 20 plus years ago. It is a very important piece of work about helping to bring a presence of mind. And even though it's, it's, it's often kind of embraced in spirituality, it's really about life because I suppose the one thing about the human mind is it's the filter through which we interpret all of life's experience. And formal education teaches us how to think, but it doesn't teach us how to stop thinking. Formal education doesn't teach us how to concentrate. Formal education doesn't help to improve our attention span. But yet, who were we as human beings? Should we be going around with our attention stuck in our head all the time? And I've done this for many, many years, walking down from one end of the street to the other. And I'd complete the journey walking with my attention fully immersed in thought, drowning in thinking, and not even see what's going on around us. How on earth can we experience life if we're living stuck in our head? So, you know, I think it's a really, and these tools would be useful, not just in the workplace, but everyday life, because life is softer. And the other aspect that I would say is that there is a relationship between agitation of the mind and concentration when the mind is agitated or when there's a lot of thought activity going through the mind, our concentration is negatively impacted. And a lot of men, I'm going to put men, especially, I'll give you this example. I was given courses on mindfulness and functional breathing from 2010 to 2013, because economically Ireland, you know, was in a pretty shit place. Mm -hmm. And I was putting them out there and I was driving around Ireland, Cork, Limerick, Dublin. 3000 people attended, you know, 90 to 95 percent of them were women. Men wouldn't attend. So men would hear about breathing and gone like a bullet, gone, not interested in it. And that's how the oxygen advantage came about, because I wanted to bring out a breathing technique that could show that you can actually improve your performance here. I'm conscious that nobody's going in to go, somebody with racing mind, for example, they may be aware that something is not quite right because sometimes we kind of get used to it. You know, you, you can feel that there's an undercurrent there, but you haven't really put your finger on it and you're not quite sure where you're at in terms of it or is this normal or is this just me? Nobody's going to go into a book or few people go into a book and come out with a book on anxiety. But they will go into a bookstore and they will come out with a book on atomic focus. And the very same tools that we use to improve our concentration and to improve our attention span and to improve our resilience are the same tools that we use to reduce anxiety and panic disorder. So I would say for people to be comfortable embracing the breath and just look at the potential of this. There's something in it. Now, where does that tie in with Eckhart Tolle? Well, if you have functional breathing, you can physiologically improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. This has a calming effect on the brain. If you have a decent Bolt score above 25 seconds, and if you're not sure how to measure it, just go into YouTube and put in Patrick McCone Bolt score, and you'll see other videos there. That if your Bolt score is above 25 seconds, you're less likely to gas out during physical exercise. But more important, your breathing is more likely to be lighter and slower and lower. And when you breathe like that, you are more likely to be calm and composed. Look at the breathing of your colleagues who can't cope well under pressure. Look at how easy they fly off the handle. And it's often that their mind is sabotaging their own potential. And when we start embracing the tools of light, slow and low breathing and breathing through the nose during physical exercise, breathing through the nose during sleep, we can access these flow states. We can improve our resilience. And life is a bit softer. And uh, yeah, and it ties in with spirituality, even though I would say that, that we never use I made one thing with the book. It says, I don't want to use the word mindfulness. Not one mention. I said, I do not want to see the word mindfulness in the book. And the only time I wrote it was that mindfulness does not work for the very person who needs it the most. And it comes back to those individuals who attended between 2010 and 2013. They attended for anxiety impact disorder, but they weren't able to meditate. How on earth can you focus on your breathing or be mindful if you're in an emotional turmoil? And instead we need to be doing breathing exercises to regulate states. And when you can regulate your state, then you can be
0: aware, and I agree a hundred percent. I think one of the barriers to entry, as you said about you know woo woo with with men, you know even with discussing their emotions, you know talking about what's actually going on, is framing it exactly like you said. Forget about you know even overcoming trauma and that stuff. Let's talk about performance. All right, you're you're that police sniper, you're that SWAT operator, you're that firefighter. If you want to find that flow state, you have to calm the mind. Yes. So here's how you can do it
1: that's it that's what it's all about
0: <laughs> well i just want to thank you so much it's been a great conversation i appreciate you carving out some time and i are getting towards the end of the year and it's very busy for everyone but there's been so much in this conversation of value to the people that you know serve their communities around the world so thank you so much for being so generous today
1: you're very welcome thanks very much james